Welcome back to another episode. And this topic is so appropriate for what's been going on the last you know, two plus years, and that's long COVID. And in my own practice, and even personally, I've had issues with long COVID and you know, particularly for people who struggle with asthma and in some cases, even allergies, there's this higher disposition towards potentially having long COVID. And now it's affecting literally millions of people around the world. So joining me today is my uh, colleague and friend, Dr. Jessica Drummond, who's in my former home state of Connecticut. In fact, we actually used to live just down the street from each other in Fairfield, Connecticut. She's a physical therapist. She's a clinical nutritionist. Uh, she's also the CEO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute, does a lot of education around women's health. And uh, she's going to share her own story of dealing with long COVID. So Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Darren. It's great to see you. Yeah, you know, when you've been in the mix and you've had to deal with your own health issues, obviously you become an expert in the field. And I know that, you know, you've uh, early on, actually, as I recall, I mean, I follow you on, on Facebook and I know you started posting. I know I might, I'll let you tell your story, but I know that you were kind of hit early on with COVID and then had to deal with the effects of long COVID. So if you don't mind, maybe let's just start and just, you know, tell us about, you know, kind of what your experience was with COVID. Yeah. So I was infected just before Christmas of 2020. Um, so right around Christmas day was when I was in the hospital and it was, so it's sort of easy to remember. We've been through two other Christmases now, which are starting to erase a little of the trauma, which is helpful, but um you know, my daughter had it, my teen, my older teenager and from her friends. And then, you know, she was sick, but not wildly sick. And she was isolated, but as a mom, of course, you can't really not check on your kid when you're in the middle of such a, you know, challenging situation. I was masked and everything, but at that time we didn't know nearly as much about transmission and, you know, N95 masking and all that stuff. You know, it's sometimes hard to remember how little we really knew at all about COVID in, in, you know, mid late 2020. Um, And I really hadn't heard of long COVID per se at that time, you know, in any understanding of what it really was. I knew some people were struggling to fully recover, but I assumed they were not in very good shape and, you know, that kind of thing that they had some health issues or predispositions. Um, Whereas I was super, super healthy at the time I was, you know, hiking mountains in Vermont, the couple, you know, that Thanksgiving, Um, I was doing high intensity interval training several times a week. I was 46 years old, um, you know, pretty healthy, like I eat really well, take supplements, you know, sleep really well, all of that kind of thing. I run a company, so I'm busy. I have levels of stress, but you know, I wouldn't have at all considered myself high risk and my, um, circumstance was that I had a super mild case. Like I barely even knew I had COVID until about, gosh, it was like seven days in it. it was it, The whole course was a lot longer than, you know, I sort of expected. I didn't get a test positive for 14 days after my daughter tested positive. And then I had this mild cough for, I think I tested positive like around December 15th. And it was like halfway through the month. And I thought, well, I'll be better by Christmas, you know, but about a week into it, it was like, I just woke up one morning and someone had poured tar in my lungs. I literally just couldn't breathe. And my heart rate started really spiking to like 120, 150, just at rest. Uh, And so I went to the ER they gave me a lot of fluids. They did me a chest x-ray. I mean, it was very efficient. At that point, they were looking, you know, they were looking for clots. They were looking for lung complications, things like that. But they didn't, other than that, have much treatment. So I went home, went back again the next day, you know, and about, I did start, I did take some steroids, which may have actually contributed to the long COVID, but I think I needed them at the time. Um and started at that point to sort of recover in terms of, I can't remember if there were any other medications I took other than steroids uh, right at the acute phase, a lot of fluids, aspirin maybe. 
Um, and then I was, you know, sent home with like fairly stable vitals and just settled down. And I stayed isolated for a little bit longer after that. And then started to try to get back to my life, but my endurance, you know, I couldn't even tolerate standing up in the shower. My heart rate was all over the place. I could barely walk, um, for a while. And so this was like another week or two. And I was like, okay, this is not recovering from the flu, which, you know, I'm not a person who got sick that much, but in my life I've had the flu. So I knew what that was like. Um, even though it was probably a decade before that. So I went to, I didn't even have a primary care doctor because, you know, I'd go to my gynecologist once a year and that was pretty much it. But my husband had seen a nurse practitioner who he liked. So I went to her, she was a cardiology nurse practitioner, which was fortunate. And, um, she did the EKG. She sent me to a cardiologist who saw me the next day, which was really nice. He kind of saved my acute circumstance. So I had pericarditis. I was on, um, high dose, um, like ibuprofen and, oh, there was another drug. I'm blanking on what it was, but it's for pericarditis, took that for three months and things slowly started to get more stable. But for a year, like a year and a half, I would still wake up short of breath, like many nights every week, um, you know, just like catching my breath. And later I started to understand, you know, I, I joined groups. I talked to a lot of different professionals. I saw specialists. I was seen at the year long COVID clinic, had a lot of, you know, pulmonary testing done, um, you know, and, and then I started to understand the wide variety of mechanisms of what long COVID was. And the first group of people I met were kind of long COVID physio, which was a group a physical therapist started in Europe, in the UK, really, who started pulling together the research because they were working with like Mount Sinai's long COVID clinic, which has physical therapists who were doing good research on long COVID. Because most of the people that I met then at that time who had had long COVID before me were young, super healthy, super fit, mostly physical therapists and other clinicians, because of course they got it at work. They were working in acute care hospitals in New York or London. And so they had six months ahead of me of experience. And what we could tell right away was that we couldn't exercise rehab this. And that's what most of us, our inclination was like, okay, I'm just going to start exercising. I'm going to eat real healthy. I'm going to get myself back in a way that you would sort of recover if you were, you know, um, deconditioned. Right. And we learned pretty quickly that that made everybody worse. (laughs) And so (laughs) found out the hard way. Yeah. But it was tricky because then it was like, well, well, wait, what do we do? And so there was a period of time with a lot of just questions and kind of, you know, going to different clinicians and working with functional medicine practitioners And it was a challenging place to be because my colleagues, I actually even stopped doing interviews about it for a while because many of my colleagues were kind of like, well, what was really wrong with you basically that like (laughs) set you up for this? What are you not telling us? And I'm like, you know, I, I, I probably had some stress, but really I was very fit and people had a lot of trouble hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, your story is so interesting, though, because, again, you're not the, I think, what we've considered to be the typical, you know, long COVID patient. You know, we heard so much about people who had, you know, bad outcomes from COVID and obesity, diabetes, heart disease, being elderly. You know, you didn't check off any of these boxes at all. And it's interesting. I mean, I've known other personal friends, and I've had patients, again, who just don't fit that profile that have ended up, you know, with this long COVID, you know, sequela. And, you know, like any, you know, pandemic, you know, we don't really understand it till we're many years after the fact when we can kind of go back retrospectively, look at some of the research and examine it a little closer. And I'm sure we'll figure it out at some point. But there's so many things that we just still don't understand about this illness of what, you know, really disposes to people 
like I said, there are people like you who on paper do everything right. So yeah. you know, why, why you versus anyone else? And yet I've seen other people who on paper, they should have been the ones that really had bad effects and they just sailed through COVID and didn't have any issues at all. Yeah. And that sort of happened to me in the acute phase where uh, my, my daughter's sort of friend group all got COVID and one of the moms is overweight and was dealing with cancer. And I was like, are, how are you? Like, oh my God, are you okay? Cause I'm thinking I'm this sick. Like yeah. what the heck, you know? Cause I really didn't know very many people who had had COVID at that point. Um, and she was like, oh yeah, I'm fine. I was like, what? So, um, so what I've learned since then in the last two years is that the risk factors for severe COVID, which to some extent, I even had a little of that, like a severe acute COVID, m much more severe. I had COVID again in September of 2021, and it was much more sort of like three days of flu-like symptoms. Yeah. So I also kind of understand not severe COVID. Um, although there is some thing about it that feels different than your average cold or flu, at least in my experience. But what, uh, what I have learned is that it, it, the high risk for acute severe COVID is things like obesity, cardiovascular disease, right. asthma, um, you know, underlying chronic conditions, because at the core, COVID is really a vascular disease. Right. It's it's not really a, a like a upper respiratory disease, like a cold in the same way. Um, but long COVID does seem to have some predisposing factors of people who who are and look fit. A couple of things that might be hidden is a history of Epstein-Barr virus, which I do have. I had mono back when in high school and I had kind of a reactivation in uh, like 2004 when my daughter was born, 2003 when my daughter was born. And um, which was triggered just by postpartum fatigue. And then uh, the kind of high intensity training you know, I, I see a lot of people in the world of physical therapy who were athletes. So dancers, triathletes, ultra, ultra runners, high, heavy endurance athletes in particular, right. um, and possibly kind of a sweet spot in thirties to fifties, um, of age. So I did, you know, fit into some of those categories and, um, women more than men, kind of in the same ratio as we'd see with autoimmune diseases, um, something like five to seven to one. So there are certainly, you know, I don't want to discount the fact that there are millions of men with long COVID as well, but there are a lot of women, you know, there seem to be more women. Um, and so there may be some interaction with perimenopause that, you know, one thing I have seen now kind of looking at the interactions between long COVID and um, menstrual health is that even women who get COVID who are younger just before their period. So anytime that estrogen is dropped, which is a time when you think about me metabolism, um, when blood sugar, uh, insulin resistance, blood sugar regulation is less well controlled unless someone's actively controlling it. So there's that variability. So people tend to be at higher risk for long COVID if they're perimenopausal with relatively low, in a phase with relatively low estrogen, or they're in the low estrogen part of their normal menstrual cycle. In that sense, being on uh, hormonal birth control is actually protective against long COVID, which is kind of interesting because it generally lowers your estrogen, but it's consistent through right. the cycle. Um, so I think that's something to take a look at. Um, in fact, people who are transgender transitioning from female to male are less or more likely to have COVID, serious COVID, like significantly more. Again, there's like a 5X amount because they're actively suppressing estrogen. Right. So if you figure a combination of heavy endurance athletics, which will also suppress estrogen, perimenopausal or um, postpartum potentially, or, you know, in the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, 
there are some kind of more subtle risk factors that we had no idea of. And I would say the vast majority of professionals still have no idea about today. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned about the high intensity training. My my observation, again, my personal friends who I know with long COVID, that's the one common denominator is that they are like hardcore, high intensity athletes. And mm -hmm. again, healthy, fit, eat well, sleep well, do all the right lifestyle things. But I wonder if that high intensity exercise puts a lot of oxidative stress on the lungs and that becomes a disposing factor. And interestingly, a friend of mine who's an Ironman triathlete uh, did an immune test that he shared with me and it was a disaster. Mm. His immune system was completely suppressed on so many levels, he had no idea. And that was sort of my clue. I mean, my N of one person, I'm like, well, maybe again, all this high intensity training is causing some element of immune suppression. And again, just opens the door for that virus to be more damaging and leading to, you know, these long COVID effects. Yeah, I think there are some immune windows of opportunity for the virus and people that are heavy exercisers. Um, one, also, there are more of the receptors throughout the heart and lungs, the cardiovascular and cardiopulmonary right. system, where the virus actually enters that, you know, as part of what doing a lot of cardiovascular training through life makes you healthier, it creates more of these receptors and now but that's the entry point in of the virus. So that's an issue or potential problem too. I've had a lot of immune testing. I've had some kind of consistent low neutrophils that did finally rebound about, took about a year, well, a year and a half, more than about a year and a half for that to fully rebound. Wow. And even now, and, and there is good data that the T cells for anyone with COVID take about three months to recover, even if you have asymptomatic COVID. So I think we, I think while, you know, long COVID is, just a certain percentage of people with COVID, I think it's much more extensive than we're really tracking. If you think about subtle long COVID, you know, people who don't live, I think one of the other reasons that people who are super healthy are kind of presenting with long COVID is that they're among the, the community who's super aware of their own health. Right because some of the symptoms are kind of vague. And if I wasn't right. really an exerciser, I would, I would kind of be like, well, I would say maybe six months post, I was back to full, you know, more or less functional other than, you know, if I wasn't like a CEO of a corporation and running a team and a mom and like an, a heavy exerciser, you know, I didn't need like my brain 12 hours a day and I didn't used to work out like 10 hours a week. <laughs> you know, there was a level of kind of normal function that I was back to probably six months post other than the shortness of breath and thing, you know, that middle of the night stuff, but more of it, you know, the, the kind of level of function some of us were at, I think is a lot higher than the average person, because I've talked to quite a few people who were like, oh yeah, you know, I, I definitely have a little more brain fog, but you know, I had a lot of brain fog before, or yeah, I have like a heart rhythm issue now, but the doctor tells me it's because I'm getting old, you know, like <laughs> there's a lot of these sort of subtle things that like, I think it's harder to recognize if you maybe don't, aren't so physically, physiologically tuned in. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the the post viral fatigue, I, that seems to be the one thing hands down, that's the biggest symptom that I've seen in my practice. And I had kind of a similar experience myself, you know, I got COVID in January of 2021, mm -hmm. after visiting my family in Arizona. And it's funny, I came back and we had just gotten a new testing system in our office to do rapid COVID testing. And the other doctor's like, oh, you should check it out. It's really neat, it's fast. And I'm like, oh, I'm tired and I've been flying. I wanna just go home. And so I'm like, all right, fine, I'll do the test. And I did the test and it came up positive. And I'm like, I had no symptoms at all. I'm like, no, it's a mistake. Did my other nostril, positive again. I'm like, okay, you know what? Let me you know quarantine myself just in case. And the next day the fatigue just hit me like a freight train and I was exhausted and it lasted about two weeks. 
Um, and I felt otherwise, you know, fine after that. But then I got COVID again in June of mm -hmm. 2021, actually going back to Connecticut because I, I hadn't been back since I moved away four years ago. And the very last day I was there, I was getting ready to, uh, I got up in that morning, was ready to head back to the airport. And I went to stand up and I felt like my legs were 500 pound bags of sand and I could barely walk. And I have multiple sclerosis, so I have an autoimmune disease. And, you know, and now reading, you know, part of this long COVID is, you know, some people do get this activation of glial cells in the brain. These are immune mm -hmm. cells in the brain. And with that glial activation, you know, that can cause fatigue, that can cause brain fog, that can cause any number of different neurological effects. And, you know, here I am six plus months later, and I'm still feel like I'm kind of reeling from the effects of it. And, uh, you know, I think anyone with any other underlying issue, it kind of throws gas on the fire and can just make that situation a lot worse. Absolutely. And I, I agree that one thing that people are, are tend to be aware of in their, in themselves, even if they aren't, aren't heavy exercisers is that post-viral fatigue. Um, one of the benefits I had kind of going into this was that history almost 20 years ago of the Epstein-Barr reactivation. So I was really kind of proactive about, you know, beet powder and antioxidants and blood sugar stability. I had like no grains whatsoever for six months, you know, in the initial acute recovery, I was essentially treating it like Epstein-Barr. And that I think was helpful to I never had such severe fatigue, but I, I did experience uh, what they call post-exertional malaise, which is a very kind of like dead, nauseous feeling. It's nothing like fatigue. It's nothing like being tired or sore the next day. Like if I would even walk a mile or even at the beginning, like three quarters of half a mile, you know, halfway down my street, I, the next day it was like, I could barely get out of bed. Yeah. So I, you know, and, and having, so I think if we kind of step back and look at all these different mechanisms, as you said, a lot of it's nervous system driven, a lot of it's vascular system driven, and then mitochondrial immune resilience um, to prevent or at least more quickly recover from. And now that we're going to have people dealing with two, three, four, you know, I know people now who've had COVID five or six times, yeah. every, every new onset infection potentially makes this worse. Right. So, and it further dysregulates the immune system. Now I, I don't, I want to say that with a grain of salt, because I think people, we have some capacity to keep rebuilding the immune system in between, I don't want people, people to feel powerless against this because it is kind of tricky to navigate now when there are very few precautions in place, you know, the vaccines are meh and, um, yeah. you know, we're, we're kind of, we're more protected at some level from that acute, um, severity, uh, in most cases, if you don't have a lot of underlying conditions, because you've either been infected or been vaccinated or both, yeah. but this is certainly not solved. And right. so getting infection after infection wears down the system. So I think pretty much everyone at the, in the moment we're in really should emphasize, particularly if you have anything, even an aller allergic dysregulation of your immune system, underlying asthma, um, cardiovascular disease, brain issues in general, you know, just even if it's just mild cognitive impairments, you know, little brain fog, forget your keys, low cognitive endurance, where you get tired after working for a while, you do want to take some active steps to keep rebuilding your body. And I think this goes for children as well. Um, you know, while children are less severely affected, there are many children, again, just might've been caught at a stressful time or had trauma because the rest of their family was infected or someone died. Or, you know, I know my youngest daughter is really affected by just the trauma of having to live with a mom who was super healthy. And then two weeks later, super sick and not recovered 
you know, even now and, and what that meant to my kids, you know, they had to be careful and isolate and protect me for a long time and protect themselves. And, you know, she didn't even have COVID for another like two years, but there was a lot of trauma of what COVID means for our family versus other families. And so I think it's important that as that we think about what these mechanisms are so that we can give our patients um, an opportunity because now let's say everyone, you know, I know a few people haven't had COVID yet, but pretty much everyone has had it in the US anyway. And so it's like, well, great. Even if it was asymptomatic, even if it was mild, let's think about how you can really optimize your immune resilience, your vascular health, your brain health. Um, so that, and your mitochondrial health, when we get back, getting back to talking about fatigue, I was also really focused from the very beginning on mitochondrial health, which I think saved me a lot of trouble in the long term to um, prevent, you know, that second or third infection, like in your case, triggering long COVID. So, you know, I've seen my own patients. I'm curious to hear your experience with testing. Are there certain things that you think people should be looking out for if they've been dealing with long COVID that, you know, we as practitioners and you as the patient need to be keeping an eye on? Well, so I've had a million tests personally. I think as a clinician, what I usually start with is just organic acids and gut microbiome, because it's useful to see what the mitochondria are doing. It's useful to see how the brain neurotransmitters are holding up. You know, is it, some of this is a dysregulation of the auto, the autonomic nervous system. So the more kind of resilient to stress and fear and, and that is actually very helpful. It's very important. I think the fact that I had my second infection post-vaccine, I had very few little symptoms at the beginning. I had already had COVID. I was in on one hand really nervous the second time, but on the other hand, with the knowledge we had at that time, I felt like I was going to be pretty protected. And I think just having that resilience, like knowing what to do at all, even if it was wrong in a placebo effect, right. was somewhat helpful. Um, because the first time I was so taken by surprise, you know, I just was like, what? Um, so I think there is some, some benefit to kind of having, you know, as a clinician, like assessing my clients around what level of trauma do they have about COVID? Um, how, how is their HPA access just holding up? Because some people who really didn't even have COVID for years and years, still had a lot of trauma from the isolation of COVID or the stress of COVID or with kids or other people like not being around their friends or their work friends or their school friends. So HPA access, I think is really important. Um, I do think immune testing, um, I used a fairly specialty test called Amerimmune to see how my uh, T cells were recovering. My B cells are not really totally vibrant, um, even now. Uh, but we're at a kind of tricky crossroads where it's like, well, maybe, maybe there's nothing really to do about that. You know, I'm not so sure I need to take action. And, uh, there are, then we tested some specific antibodies. So my COVID antibodies have been pretty much great since the moment I got COVID, they've been high the whole time, right. but there are some other antibodies that are not super strong. So for some people, I think if there's an immune weakness, like they keep getting COVID again and again and again, or not just COVID now, sometimes like COVID flu, RSV, you know, I think doing some more specialty immune testing could be helpful. Um, there isn't like pulmonary function testing, I think is helpful to see like if there's a true lung issue, even then though COVID, you know, does sometimes cause like the lung issues. But I think in a lot of cases, it's things we don't really see on my pulmonary function testing was always perfectly normal. Yeah. Um, I'll get into a little bit of what I did about the organ issues in a second, but for many people that breathlessness is related to dysautonomia, some, like a form right. of POTS. 
So tilt table testing, maybe, although that's so traumatic and can really trigger post-exertional malaise that I sort of take the perspective that if you think you have POTS, you probably do like, do we need to really test for that? I don't know. Um, what else? Oh, the other thing I think it can be helpful to test, although again, I don't think we're seeing everything with these tests are D-dimer, troponin, fibrinogen, some of the clotting markers. We've done a lot of testing with our patients looking at that. And we surprisingly find a lot of people do have elevations of these markers. And like you said, you know, this is a vascular disease mm -hmm. and this disposition towards basically over clotting. But from a treatment standpoint, that's really helpful to understand because with treatment, we can see these levels come back down and it just, you know, reduces your risk of, you know, potential heart attack, stroke, blood clots, things of that nature. And I think also inflammation testing, you know, like HSCRP, yeah. things like that can be valuable. There's a lot of people who are just struggling with inflammation. People can have, I think, you know, in my opinion, normal clotting markers and potentially still have microclots. We don't have great testing for that in the US yet, but in Germany and Croatia, there's some research being done. Um, I think it's Croatia, it might be Greece, but definitely Germany. Um, that's probably the main, you know, obviously a chest x-ray acutely if that, if people are having issues, but most of many of those tests can be normal right. and still there can be an issue. One thing I did see recently was, um, small fiber neuropathy testing and other neuropathy testing. I definitely think, you know, especially if there there's truth to this theory of microclots, clogging, if you will, the capillaries, um, making it one reason that pulse ox levels are normal, right. but at the level of the vessel. So I did have some specialty kind of exercise testing that's normally done in chronic fatigue. And essentially it was found that my blood is well oxygenated, but my tissues are not getting the oxygen, oxygen out of the blood. So one possible cause for that could be um, microclotting at the level of the, the um, capillaries. So with that, sometimes you can do a punch biopsy and something like see something like small fiber neuropathy. I haven't gone that deep with the testing. There are some other reasons that could be including dysautonomia. So changes in the blood the vascular pressure is not well managed. For me, that feels probable as well. Um, I, I don't know that I have pure POTS, but I definitely have some level of dysautonomia. Um, you know, heat is no fun. <laughs> I'm grateful to live in Connecticut now. Yes. I can attest um, that the heat in the summertime after having this long COVID, uh, living in California and we had a really, really hot summer. It was brutal. It was very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I also think for some people, things like thyroid testing, um, you know, mitochondria we'll see mostly on the oat, although I did do, um, another mitochondria, the mitoswab, mitoswab um, yeah. that was super valuable because we could see which, um, electron transport chains were like most stressed. So adding, um, nicotinamide mononucleotide and, things of that nature were, you know, other forms of kind of active B vitamins that feed the NADH that for me worked much more effectively than niacin. And it worked much more effectively than even taking NADH, NAD plus or NADH sublingually, um, doing the precursors NR and NMN was much more effective for energy. Well, let's, let's jump into, you know, treatment. I know people have been dealing with it. They're like, you know, what do I do? And maybe share a little bit about what did you do for yourself or what have you been recommending for your clients? Yeah. So I think again, if we take it like mechanism by mechanism for the like initial acute inflammatory recovery, and even now, if you haven't really fully recovered your inflammation, it's really imperative to be on a, this anti-inflammatory nutrition plan you can handle. Um, and that's going to be a little different for everyone, but lots of fruits and vegetables, no sugar, limited, you know, limited 
certainly no processed grains, limited grains, um, high quality protein sources, olives, olive oil, fish, you know, walnuts, things like that. Um, less or no dairy, uh, or at least fermented dairy, if you're going to do dairy and you have to kind of do that, like think of it as sort of forever, you know, with yeah. breaks for a, a day of a holiday here. If the, if this is a huge lifestyle change for you, definitely work with a health coach or nutritionist, because I really think that because we're still living in COVID exposure, that has to be foundational. Um, sleep. So I go to sleep at like nine o'clock every night. <laughs> and Very <it's>, good. <laughs> yeah. And it's tricky because I don't, you don't always sleep well with this because you break right. waking up breathless. There's issues with sleep with dysautonomia. I had a lot of like, I would wake up with every REM cycle for a while. I thought I had sleep apnea, which I don't know, maybe I did. It didn't really show up that way, but who knows? And, um, so there are many reasons why, be, why it might be hard to sleep. So for what I do and what I recommend to my patients that I feel like just takes the pressure off is download uh, any kind of app or, you know, a YouTube video of a yoga nidra practice that you like, which is just think of it as just sleeping yoga or a sleep meditation or like calm app or something like that will have sleep stories or just sleep music, either be sleeping or listening to something like that and count it as the same sleep or rest. And just try to do that between nine, nine 30, 10 at the latest, and at least 6am, if not a little later every day. And that way there's not the pressure of what if I'm not sleeping? What if I can't sleep? Now, certainly we can do, you know, for people, there are supplements to support sleep. Melatonin can be really valuable. Um, many other things can be really valuable from a nutritional supplement standpoint to optimize sleep. But, you know, for me, what I just found was taking the pressure off having to sleep and those times during the recovery where the insomnia was sort of challenging, no matter what I took, or I would feel groggy or something like that. If I took something, but I still wasn't sleeping well. Um, yoga Nidra or sleep meditation is super helpful. And, and that said, I also really like Yoga Nidra in general. And there's a woman who's teaching kind of digital yoga classes. A lot of them are free on YouTube. Her name is Susie Bolt, which is just movement. It's like yin yoga, calming yoga, restorative yoga. I think for, especially for those of us who get this, who are kind of type A, which I know nothing about <laughs> me neither. When you can't exercise, you it's helpful to have a practice to be doing. Um, and then once your mitochondria is recovered, so mitochondria recovery for me, which is still kind of ongoing, um, was a lot of, so some people really benefit from just plain niacin vitamin B3. It can give you that flushing, but if you tolerate that, that can be helpful. I found nicotinamide mononucleotide, which is known as NMN is even better. Uh, nicotinamide riboside, also really good. And some of the other B vitamins, although there's a bit of a um, neuropathy situation with this too, that I'm not hundred percent sure isn't exacerbated by B6 and just metabolizing B, some of the other B vitamins. So be a little careful with B vitamins, but B3 and B1, B5, B12 seems to be helpful, especially if any of those tests low. Um, CoQ10, Debanone, Ubiquinol, Urolithin A, which is a, a metabolite of some of the gut microbiome that may be damaged with COVID that also feeds mitochondria. Those particular nutrient supplements are really helpful for recovering the mitochondria. And I take a lot of that every day, even now. And I think it's helped me be pretty functional and increasingly able to exercise. Um, so once the mitochondria are more stable and you're not having that really post-exertional fatigue, the um, Levine protocol from the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania or either Philadelphia or Pennsylvania, the CHOP protocol for dysautonomia is boring, but effective exercise. 
And if you really can't stand it, you know, I have a rowing machine and we got at home just a very inexpensive one and you could swim. And if you really can't stand the exercises, which are kind of boring physical therapy exercises, do really gentle Pilates and start there. Cause it's that horizontal position. That's so key. Um, let me make sure there's no other like really important for the dysautonomia, hydration, salt, water, salt, really important, especially if the cleaner you're eating. Sometimes you're not getting adequate salt right. electrolytes. I can't emphasize enough how much you need to drink electrolytes. Um, a lot of gut healing support. So this is going to be a little bit individualized, but optimizing digestive and, you know, gut microbiome, digestive health, gut digestive lining. So helpful. So important. I also am working a lot on immune health with things like colostrum, um, medicine, you know, immune supportive mushrooms, um, research nutritional has an immune I think it's called like immune factor. It's a lot of immune mushrooms and lining of the immune system, you know, those kind of barrier function optimization, um, fish oil and SPM mediators for that and beets for the vascular health beets, beet powder, um, astaxanthin and, uh, black seed oil. Mm -hmm. So lots and lots of antioxidants, some nootropics really are helping the brain fog. There's a supplement company called Amari, which makes mito, um, menta focus. I believe it is. Yes. Menta focus, which is a nootropic supplement. That is a noticeable improvement in that kind of brain fog, like, like a noticeable improvement that day. And they also have, there are a number of probiotics, uh, supplements that are probiotic strains that are very helpful for sort of calming the nervous system and, and helping with cognitive function. I think that's something to look into. And then ultimately for me, some people also get a lot of benefit from Lotus naltrexone. Yeah. Uh, for me, that was not good. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> But, you know, many, many people that I've talked to with long COVID really do benefit from that. So that's a really important thing to explore. And oh, NAC and glutathione. There's a new study that just came out with a combination of NAC and guafenicin hmm. was very helpful for long COVID. And um, there are two particularly kind of COVID focused supplements. One is called medicinals, which you have to get from overseas. I think it's actually made in India but that's for acute COVID and long COVID. And it's essentially, it's very similar to the supplement Neuroflam. It's essentially a combination of fairly high dose um, bioflavonoids like quercetin, rutin, yep. you know, EGCG. So that's been helpful. I found that helpful and I use it whenever there's acute COVID around for, you know, in our family or whatever. Um, and I do think that anyone getting an acute case of COVID who, especially if you're high risk or you've got long COVID, you know, using Paxlovid for the follow-up cases of COVID, if that's not well tolerated or you don't want to do that, uh, there's another supplement called Tolavid that I really have found super helpful, more helpful than something like Ivermectin, which I did take quite a lot of. I got COVID while being on Ivermectin, so take that as you may. Um, and, um, but Tolavid, I did find to be sort of similarly helpful for the long COVID. I did find the ivermectin helpful for the long COVID, but Tolavid better, more effective and a little bit easier to get in some cases. Um, so, you know, consider basically the same way we would heal the immune system normally, the gut microbiome normally, the mitochondrial normally, optimizing vascular epithelium, and essentially treating the brain as if it's had a concussion um, helps. I have not done hyperbaric oxygen, but many people benefit from that. I've done a lot of IVs like glutathione and vitamin C and things like that. That's been helpful. And the thing that most helped me that truly transition to help me able to feel like I'm at some point going to sort of fully recover, recover to a better normal, um, is actually stem cell therapy. 
which I went to Houston. They're doing a great research project of an organization down in, in um, I believe it's Sugarland in right outside of Houston. Uh, I didn't join that study because it's a, it was a placebo controlled trial and it was a lot of travel and I didn't really want to potentially be in the placebo arm, but I do think that study may even still be ongoing and it's very well done. Like I went and met with all those physicians and it's free, you know, to enroll. Um, if I lived in Houston, I would do that in a heartbeat. Um, but I, I ended up going outside the country to get stem cell therapy, which was very expensive, but it was very valuable to my recovery. And I think going back to that organ damage, we were talking about the lungs. I never had asthma or smoked or anything like that, but I did have a lot of breathlessness, a lot of cardiovascular symptoms, a lot of chest pain. And for about two months after the the, you know, stem cells is not easy. It's, it's an intense two hour painful experience. Um, but, and I had really bad dysautonomia from it for a few months, but about turning the corner around three or four months post, I believe that's the thing that actually like healed my heart and lungs. So then all of the tools that you and I use in our practice all of the time, you know, nutritional, supplemental, lifestyle, medicine, exercise, we're able to finally stick and, and make some progress. I'm curious with stem cells, uh, did you use your own or did you use donor cells? I used uh, donor, um, uh, not embryonic, a uh, cord blood, donor cord blood. Mesenchymal stem cells. Yes. Um, and, and a high dose, like 300 million. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, in the study there do, they did the original study in Houston with 200 million once a month for four months. So also a really, really high dose, um, of the donor, the donor's own cells. Yeah. And that was the phase one trial and worked quite well. And then the phase two trial that I was going to be a part of was, um, donor cells, but from adults between like healthy adults between 18 and 35, um, also probably will work well. We'll see. Um, but that's also is going to be 200 million, four times, you know, over the course of four months with four months, I think three months of follow-up. Um, so what I did was a little bit higher dose than that singular dose, but all at once. And then, you know, the, the expectation is that I won't need to do it again, but I also think that doing it again would probably be great. Um, it's just a matter of sort of balancing the cost benefit. Yeah. Uh, I'll add, you know, we've done hyperbaric quite a bit with some of our long COVID patients and by and large, most of them do very well. Again, it's a therapy where you've got to go generally to a place to have it done. Uh, it can get to be expensive because it's not like it's a one and done kind of therapy. Often people need several treatments. It can be anywhere from 20 to 40 treatments to really see the best benefits. So uh, again, it can become cost prohibitive, but for folks that have accessibility and it fits the budget uh, as a non-drug, non-pill way of managing COVID, I've actually found it to be quite helpful. And I know Dr. Paul Harch, who's a researcher at LSU on hyperbaric oxygen, he's actually published a handful of studies on COVID, long COVID using hyperbaric oxygen. And again, the studies have all been quite favorable. I really wish that was a more part of these long COVID centers because like at Yale, they do have a hyperbaric center, but they don't use it for long COVID. And I keep... No gently and firmly poking my long COVID physicians at Yale. But I do, I agree with you. I think hyperbaric oxygen is a really valuable supplement for many reasons, but especially for people who have cognitive endurance issues and brain fog issues, because it's the same, it's like treating concussion. Yeah. Well, it's a great anti-inflammatory therapy. And ultimately that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get this inflammation down that's been set off by all these I mean, different factors. And again, it's one of my favorite non-pill ways of managing inflammation. So we use it for yeah, concussion, traumatic brain injury, COVID. We use it for Lyme disease. We use it for anything where we think inflammation is part of the problem. And again, by and large, we see you know quite good results with it. But it's the time factor. It's the money factor. And again, for a lot of folks, it's just... Uh, for either one, it just doesn't quite fit the bill. But for those, again, who have access and the means, 
again, can be incredibly helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been incredibly helpful. I mean, we give people a lot of great information if they've been dealing with COVID. You know, it's encouraging to know that, yes, you can recover. There are ways to manage it. There are non-drug ways. You talked about a lot of different nutrients and diet and lifestyle. So uh, before we close out, are there any other uh, things that you think it's important for people to know who've been dealing with long COVID? Well, I think the final thing is just nervous system regulation is important skill set to learn. And, and some many, you know, I think just like with any chronic illness, you know, my professional focus is in endometriosis and there's a lot of overlap and, you know, you do a lot with chronic autoimmune disease and Lyme and there's a trauma to it that I really kind of, until I experienced it, I really underestimated the impact of that to my physical health. So I saw a therapist who was skilled in EMDR and internal family systems, and it didn't, you know, it didn't take hundreds of sessions. I probably worked with her for maybe three months, um, five months at the outside. And it was super valuable to have many, many kinds of practices for healing the trauma and regulating my nervous system. So, you know, all the mindfulness tools, all the polyvagal tools, uh, craniosacral, you know, I saw a craniosacral therapist for a while, acupuncture, I still do regularly to kind of settle the nervous system. Because one thing that COVID does, I think, is you're still, you know, feeling is it's, it's stressful on the nervous system. And then so is so much else of what we do in our life. Like I really noticed, I went to Texas for two weeks for a week and a half for Christmas and just wasn't, I didn't have my computer really. I didn't have any work. We were sort of closed, which is very unusual in, in my life. And I felt so much better just because there was less stress on the nervous system. And so that boat combination of sort of addressing the the trauma and regular having lots of strategies and rest for regulating the nervous system and rest for the nervous system are super valuable. Well, I'm grateful that you shared your story with us. I know it's so inspiring to people who've been dealing with it to know that there is the possibility of recovery. So I'm just grateful that you spent the time with us and shared your story. So thanks, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me.